Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, rasa, rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. White organization is part of a national. Um, I was not in the lead. I was in a support role in Pop-Up. on the other side of the state. Um, so, but I've been involved and I edit our state newsletter um, and also I'm a sociologist. I'm interested in uh, anti-racism activist, anti-poverty activist. So. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm Maria Zavala Paredes. Um, I've been community organizer, union organizer, student organizer for many, many, many years. Um, most recently, I've been working on my husband's case of uh, juvenile life without parole um, and trying to uh, speak, trying to help the uh, process along so that he can come home. He was right when he was 15. Uh, along with about 400 other people in Michigan. Um, so uh, it, that's been a slow process. We've, I've been working on that for the last 20 years, uh, I want to say. Um, been doing some prison uh, prisoner education, would go inside the facilities to work with prisoners um, about learning about their Chicano culture. Um, so did that for many years, worked with the United Farm Workers with Todd in, in Detroit, also worked at Michigan State University to, and did a, like a six day hunger strike to call attention to Chicano issues on campus, uh, recidivism rates uh, and uh, lack of uh, Chicano Latino professors helped uh, uh, the start of the Chicano Latino, um, uh, the, oh my God, the um, certification uh, into Chicano Latino Studies program. Um, so did a lot of things on campus. Um, and then I found a job with Telemann Corporation, uh, which brought me to uh, Pawpaw, Michigan. I, um, I do pre-purchase home buyer education, financial coaching um, to the Latino population, the migrant population here. And because of that, I had to put both my girls in, um, in school, in the Pawpaw School District. Um, and um, started working on um, not, I mean, I, I was following and supporting, I should say, um, and from the inside, um, the change of the mascot here in Pawpaw. Uh, but it got ugly. It got really ugly. And so I took, um, I took a step back for a little while. Um, but then um, just again, continuing to be as supportive as I could. Um, I, I can't even tell you how brutal it was for Monica and Julie, the organizers um, of this. Um, and it was, it, it was, it was crazy. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a little bit about me. I've known many of the people on this panel for many, many years, like Karen was saying decades now. Um, so I'm, thank you for inviting me today to talk about this. Can you guys see and hear me okay? I'm um, barricaded in my bedroom um, because I have my family outside and at any moment they could, uh, you know, bust in. So I'll be switching back and forth between the mute. That's okay. Um, I have five children. And so we, we're dealing with the stand inside from the COVID and everything. But anyway, Ani Boju, Monica and Dishinikaz. Uh, my name is Monica Washington Kudula. Um, I'm from Lansing originally. That's where I was born and raised. Um, I came to Kalamazoo, uh, Kikinamazoo, which is where I ended up staying after graduating from uh, college at Western Michigan. I um, studied music for my undergrad and grad degrees, so I'm out here trying to use uh, music for the movement, for the culture. And um, in addition to that, I do began my community organizing and advocacy and activism uh, surrounding two events, both uh, as I became more aware of and um, as I continued going through the reclamation of my indigenous identity. Um, I grew up removed from my indigenous identity. Um, and so once I began figuring out more about my uh, biological family and began going the route of figuring out, you know, where am I from? What is my tribe? Uh, it, that just unraveled everything uh, and the steps kept being made clear for me of what I needed to do and eventually 
uh, language learning got me learning about boarding schools. Uh, learning about boarding schools drew for me the parallel of the way that public school education in these days are still an ongoing representation of uh, erasure and preventing of equitable access for learning to specifically indigenous students. And so that's when I made the connection between for me, mascots are an ongoing representation of, of white supremacy, of colonization, of supposed conquest. And so for me, I began to come to recognize the racist history of the R word term, of the term redskin. I began to see the ways that uh, stereotypes and icons and uh, caricatures were a part of the ongoing history of America with degrading folks of color. And so once I saw that, you know, that's one of the remaining obstacles in public school education that's really in our face that we need to tackle and, and, and remove the complacency around that. That's when I began activism around abolishing that part of, of public school education culture. And in addition, I be also became active around the time of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I had two kind of resurgences and forms of activism that began to, to come together and brew at the same time. I identify as Afro-Native, so I am both Black, ethnically Black, and also um, have been reclaiming my Ojibwe culture and uh, my family are historic descendants of the Saginaw Band of Ojibwe in Michigan. And I just wanted to add, because Monica wasn't on there, Monica and Julie Dye really picked up the struggle in Papa, and Maria did what she could, but it's different when you have a kid in the system. But they really were on point there and really had their boots on the ground in this fight. And I participate with Michigan Coalition Against Racism in Sports. And, you know, Monica, I'm glad you reminded me. I, I should identify, you guys, I'm Euro-Native. I'm three-quarters uh, European-American, and I'm one-quarter Native through my grandmother. And I went through that reclamation process, too, and I've really tried to be supportive of Monica uh, and other people who are trying to find out who we are. And I actually have gone back to my grandmother's tribe in Maine. And for 12 years, I worked with an elder that ran our community center museum and language program. And I actually ended up publishing an oral history book with him uh, through the University of Maine. And so it's a long, hard struggle. And I think that one of the really big issues is that as dominant society has defined us in this cartoonish way. It's taught our ancestors and ourselves even to be ashamed of who we are. And so they remove the truth and they insert these people like your guy who is part of this organization, this Hispaniol uh, organization, um, and they dominate the, the dialogue and get, try to define who we are. And I think now that we're doing this kind of cancel culture, we need to take a step beyond that and decide what are we going to do in its place. I don't. I think it's fantastic that we're tearing things down, but um, in Clinton, where they were the R skins until just this past week, mm -hmm. um, people fought really hard. To remove that and there were hate crimes there were hate crimes in MC there were hate crimes at EMU if you guys remember Kylie remember Kylie she had a hate crime perpetrated against her and you guys know she walked on yeah Mexico actually she's gone so there's been all these negative consequences and all these sacrifices made and I would like to see us kind of unify and come together in the direction. How are we going to get out there and reach out to each other, um, to our own people and to each other and replace that racist colonial narrative? That, like truth and reconciliation, we still need to do the reconciliation. Doing it by teaching indigenous studies, right? But that's why I wanted to hear what you guys have to say and how we can come together I think that's an excellent frame, Karen. I really appreciate you saying that. What I was hoping is that maybe you guys could give us a, a historical synopsis of the struggle 
that that you went through there, you know, not just for our our benefit, but for the people who are listening, right? Because one of the things that we really try to do with this podcast is talk about organizing and the organizing work that that people are doing in uh, different communities. Right. And so being able to provide those uh, those stories, I think is very empowering to uh, individuals who are thinking about doing the same thing, but they're just not quite sure how they would go about it. Monica, if you wanted to, or Maria or Karen, if you guys just kind of wanted to round robin it and talk about the, um, the campaign itself, that would be good. And I want to give a thank you too, um, to all of you being on here as relatives. One thing I mentioned uh, in the thread when Ernesto was um, approaching, you know, myself about having this conversation online is I said, hey, you know, I know this is a Chicano, Chicana piece, um, you know, forum. And I said, I, I love that because of the fact that, uh, you know, indigeneity is, is, is universal, especially for black and brown people. And how are we acknowledging our interconnectedness? How are we acknowledging our relationship? And so a lot of times we get folks that are pushed out of those narratives and folks that are pushed out of having access to indigeneity. And uh, that's been part of my journey that this work has, has started for me because of the fact that I am Black and Native. So Maria, actually, would you be willing to tell a little bit about yours? I need to take just a quick exit to hug my children uh, goodbye quickly, and I will be right back. All the children that we have in our different houses, they are the uh, background noise to this podcast, most of, <laughs> mostly every week. So yeah, we got that. So I can talk a little bit about when I came into what was already happening in the area. I can't even remember the dates right now, but Estrella, uh, my middle child, was in was it middle school? No, in high school. And Mayeli was in elementary school and I believe actually she was just starting the great start collapse so great start so not even in school yet and I, I knew where I was coming I wasn't I didn't come to this town blindly I knew that there were a lot of racial tensions a lot of racial issues my husband is from St. Joseph I mean from Berrien County uh, bordering Benton Harbor and St. Joseph, and that's only about a 40-minute drive from here. Uh, years ago, Governor uh, Granholm at that time deployed the National Guards to Benton Harbor and St. Joe because there was some racial riots happening down there. So any rural community out here on the outskirts is very ultra-conservative uh, community. And so I knew, I knew what was going on. I prepared my children. You have the talk, you know, there, there's going to be these things happening, but you need to, we need to talk about them, right? Um, and Estrella, I mean, she had grown up in the, in the movement, I call it, you know, with everybody um, doing organizing activism. Um, so she understood um, from, a, from a, a young lady's perspective of, of what that was and what that entailed. And so the very first time that I really had a really, I guess, I feel like sometimes that I lived in a bubble when I lived in East Lansing, because in East Lansing, the organizing we did made an impact and it was pretty quick, the impact that it made. So I was working in, um, at that time in Hartford, Michigan, I was working with the migrant program with migrant school program. And across the street from the migrant school program, there is a trailer park. And I drove into the migrant program. And as I'm turning into the migrant program, I look over to the trailer park and there was this big, huge flag that had a swastika on it. And it was a very apparent because all the buses that pick up the migrant kids um, drive by there. Um, they have to, there's no other way, you can't miss it. And so that was my first experience in the area. I was like, oh my God, I can't, you know, I can't believe that that is allowed to, I, I understand self-expression, I understand all that, but it was just very impactful. The second time was I was at a gas station and this white guy came out of the gas station calling every, like that, that guy's, a, you know, it's just saying all kinds of derogatory things about the clerk and he's like, fucking beaner, right? And it was like, my windows were rolled down, my two girls were in the car and I was just, taken aback by the fact that this guy was just blurting racial slurs. So that, that was kind of my first uh, impression of the area. And then Estrella came home one day from school. She was in high school and she said, mom, we're working on this project where we have to, it's a science project where we have to build a, a um, air balloon 
um, and the air balloon, it, it's we're doing it as a team. And two, uh, two or three of the guys on her team decided that it would be cute to draw a swastika at the bottom of the basket of the air balloon. And so I told her, I said, what did you do? She said, well, I talked to the teacher and the teacher said there, there, it was no big deal that they can express themselves the way they want. And that's self-expression and, and there's nothing wrong with it. So it's an, a swastika on its own is, is an isolated thing. It doesn't mean any, you know, anything racial. The very next day, those same kids uh, knew that Estrella had gone to the teacher and drew a Hitler in the basket. And so um, at that point, you know, you, you really, I went to the school and submitted a complaint about it. They don't treat parents very well at the school. They don't address you as a parent. They address the child. So when you come to the front office, they don't even talk to you as a parent. They only address the child. And so they claim that that's because they, they're teaching these um, students to be adults. And so therefore they should be accountable for their own actions. And if they have a complaint, they need to address the child. And I was like, well, I, I, I have, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel that same way. So I'm here to submit this complaint. Um, long and short of it, they didn't do anything about it. They did talk to the students, but that's all they did. They talked to the students and there was no education. There was no uh, repercussion. There was no, nothing, nothing, nothing happened to the students. And then Moving fast forward, um, uh, the ACLU, con uh, I can't remember how it ended up, but I, I got in contact with an ACLU attorney and I gave him my story. And then he said that uh, the statute of limitation was over and they couldn't do anything about it. And then later on, I ended up going to one of the um, board meetings that they did an open forum to the board meeting and that's where i met monica and julie and a really great supportive community um, kalamazoo community that came out in full force to oppose the the mascot it was super traumatizing i've seen some shit in my life really i was talking to todd not too long ago um in all the organizing that we've done in our lifetime we've seen some really really difficult things but this this meeting that i walked into was uh, crazy, crazy as heck. I mean, there's this huge auditorium. I don't even know what the capacity of the auditorium is, but it's huge. And, and, uh, everybody was wearing red shirts and the, the, I mean, the section for, for the supporters was so small. <laughs> it was very apparent that the whole community in Papa came out in full force. These are people who never come to anything. These are people who never support sports, who never support, you know, they were just coming out in full force. There was three police, police uh, entities there, the local police, the tribal police was there, the state police was there. So all these, the scene was you walk into the auditorium and the first thing you encounter are all these police cars. You go into, into the lobby of the auditorium and there was these individuals yelling, foaming at the mouth um, at this Native American vet and yelling in his face that he didn't belong there, that this was in his community to get the hell out of there. Um, and now I remember Karen was the one they invited me to this, to this meeting. And then I saw Karen there. It was just really, really, really hard to walk into. I brought my yelly because I thought it was a school board meeting. And I, you know, in retrospect, I, I don't know that I would have brought her if I knew what was going to happen, but I did bring her and I'm glad I did because she saw what was happening. She, she, she couldn't process it at the moment, but I couldn't process it at the moment. I was really taken aback. So we've talked about, we talked about it after and she understands now what was going on, but, and that was pretty tough. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I know. Take, She's take your time. Telling me not to cry. Yeah, no, no take no. your time. It's all right. And then, um, so moving forward, I mean, the, uh, in elementary, um, she's at the elementary school level. And we were having a conversation one day, me and my Ellie, she's 10 now. She was about um, nine last year. And she came, we were talking just about mother daughter things that you talk about in the car and she mentioned that that she was used as a uh, as an example in the classroom 
because her skin color was different than this boy in the school. So she, this teacher brought both of them up to the front of the class and uh, told her, told them, well, this is culture. See, her skin color is brown and she's a different culture than him. He's the different culture than she is. And this was weeks after it happened. She didn't even tell me right away. So I did call the, the school and um, I addressed the teacher first. It ended up being that nobody did it. None of the teachers. No, that wasn't me. She has other teachers she goes to. So that wasn't me. I don't know who did it. I still haven't gotten any answers from the school uh, as to why that happened and why that was done. And I, you know, I was just like, I want to provide information and education. I don't want to blame whoever did it. I want these people who did it or your school staff to realize that there's many, many other ways to teach culture than to show somebody and use them as a prop and show that their skin color is culture. So those, those are a few of the things and examples that have happened to me in the school district. Um, uh, and to my knowledge, this fight didn't start recently. This has been going on for years and years and years in terms of changing the mascot. Um, and there's men, been many supporters in Papa who want this change to happen. It just, you know, the majority, they, they, really, they really show their true colors when it comes to any type of change. And, and the, the most disheartening part about it is, it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but one of the women who is leading, was leading the, the, to keep the mascot, um, Kim Vargas, to my knowledge, is Mexican. Her husband's white, and he ended up running for school board because he said that the only way to secure the mascot was if he was on the school board. He did run for school board. However, a year after, uh, no, not even a year, months after he became school board, he passed away of a heart attack. And I think that Kim lost some momentum, but man, she had a lot of supporters uh, and still has a lot of supporters. I'm going to pass it over to Monica. Um, was he elected, Maria? Just real quick. Was he elected to the school yep. board? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, me was Maria for, you know, you know, it was a lot. It definitely was a lot. And, you know, when you see that emotion, you know, there's something there, you know, where when you are fighting just to maintain, just to keep what you know is base level right, what is base level need, right? Having to put so much effort into that and, and then taking that blame and that shame off of your baby, you know, it's too much. The reason that I even got involved in this, not knowing anything about the history of Pawpaw, uh, not even intending to end up at Pawpaw. You know, I really feel like, you know, when things need to be done, I do feel like, you know, the creator puts us in places and positions uh, for things we have no idea we are there to do. And I firmly believe that my position in Pawpaw and what happened to me aside from the school situation is what put me in the way to disrupt that ongoing commitment to white supremacy and inequality for for black and brown kids because when i during all of the things that uh you know all of the time all of the planning all of the research all of the of the digging and 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 finding this out and finding that out you know if you pull up papa's demographics what i remember at least within the last couple of years it was 0.2 percent native american and then there is a small amount of african americans and then a, a majority white folks, rural white folks, you know, descendants of settlers. And when we, when I think about this, I was looking inside of uh, one of my notebooks where I kept a lot of notes. I keep a lot of notes, kind of like a journal during my activism time. And I will write down all the things I'm learning. I will write down who I'm talking to, what we talked about. Uh, one of the things I found is uh, when I was talking to uh, contact the ACLU, because I did reach out to ACLU, I was reaching out to so many people for help. And I remember that, uh, you know, we were talking about, well, civil disobedience, you know, uh, there are a lot of people of the older generation, you know, the elder generation that, you know, they don't do civil disobedience. And I try to look at and respect the timeline of what their lives, you know, ha have faced and experienced. So, you know, they're growing up during civil rights times. You know, they're seeing a lot of aggressive violent behaviors happening just for basic rights, you know? So there's a lot of, I think, fear, a lot of, uh, you know, trauma and things that are still, you know, that our elder generations are still working through. But 
for the generations that are millennial and Gen Z, we, we tend to step in and we've got this fresh momentum to pick up and run off and carry things. And um, that's why I find the intergenerational movement is so important. And it's important to let the youth tell you what they're going through. It's important to um, acknowledge the energy that um, is harnessed inside of the youth when they've been harmed, when they've been traumatized. It's important to let them say, okay, how do I support you and going the direction that you need to go to, to correct this, to ask for a restitution in this. Um, I think that's so important. So we're always learning from each other in this cycle. But one of the things that I read from ACLU and, and a big shout out to, to Mark Fancher, um, I, I try to be really careful, you know, with security not to, you know, name drop. But I, when I tell you that this individual was pivotal in making sure we had support from an outside large scale organization, he showed up. One of the things we talked about was, you know, uh, you have to, you know, weigh your risk. The civil disobedience turned people away. Some people, but at the same time, as we're seeing what's going on today in these days, a lot of those, those laws and a lot of those regulations were set up in order to control and regulate us, in order to control and keep us in line and in check. And so a lot of times when you feel that you have to resist in a really disruptive way, in a really loud way, in a really visible way, I don't think that there's one way to do activism. And that's one of the struggles that I went through personally in this fight, because a lot of people did not agree with my ideas. They did not agree with my, I would say, intentionality. Some people called it, I heard people call it militant. I heard people call it aggressive. I even heard someone call, call it ethnocentric, which I didn't find wrong. Right. So, I, you know, um, but one thing that became part of the foundation of my movement was there's no outsiders where human issues are concerned. So this was just before I believe we were having all of the things happen with Trump's election and with having all of the violence we saw happening to our um, Latinx keys and our South Central American, my family and relatives trying to come and seek out outsiders. That same rhetoric is used towards North American indigenous folks here on Turtle Island. So in Pawpaw, which mind you is a tiny, extremely white rural town, about 20 miles, 15, 20 miles outside of Kalamazoo, you know, so it's a little ways, you know, off the highway. They've got their own little space out there. They've been using this mascot and this nickname for Pretty, their school was established at the end of the 1800s, I believe. And so they've been, they've been having full reign over this for eons, for a century. So they're very attached. They're very attached to this. Uh, so for someone, especially that looks like me, to start telling them, like, hey, you know, this isn't okay. This is representative of a larger issue here. That started some stuff. Yes, it's true. There, from what I learned from the elders that I worked with, um, which were there, there were two main elders that I worked with. And Karen did, you know, come down and show support, traveled down, gave a whole presentation to the school board. We worked together. Uh, but the two main elders that were closest to me locally, one of them had led the effort to retire and did, did abolish the mascot in Marshall. Michigan and had already gone through the experience, also had undergone some hate crimes, had things burned, had um, just a lot of violations happen, uh, wouldn't be served in certain institutions, a lot of harassment, intimidation. So this individual had already undertaken that. And so they were referred to me when I first started looking for help to address this. Another person I worked with actually showed up to one of the demonstrations back when it was just me and a couple of my children. So I know, I understand the note about children, but when you don't have a lot of bodies, you know, sometimes you got to tell your kids, hey, it's just us. We're the only ones that are here right now. And we got to step in right, right here. So they see it's not just me, you know, um, you know, as a student, you're impacted by this, whether you recognize it or not. You know, it would just be me and my kids and, and standing out there holding signs before the school board meeting. And one of one of the elders that I ended up who is blazing on, you know, now and, and working to uh, impact change, you know, in, in local government and things like that. Very grateful to work with them. Um, and they are an elder from the from the Pokagon band of Odawatomi and, and closest to Pawpaw as far as the tri as which which tribal band in nation is closest to Pawpaw. Mm -hmm. um, and so that came into play as we were going. So there's so many different facets of of this networking that I was just throwing myself into doing, knowing not, not knowing much at all, but just reaching, grasping. I lived in the community for a short time because 
to myself at the time had lost his, uh, his job. So we needed to find something very quickly. I managed as a musician to find a, a position in Pawpaw at a church as a music director that paid enough to get us on our feet for a little bit. I accepted it. Uh, this was out of need. So I didn't do my research. I just knew that we were going to be okay for a little while. Uh, once I started seeing that it wasn't a safe place for myself, as a black and brown woman, as someone that is dedicated to bringing sacred music that are not just Eurocentric with me wherever I go, it became problematic and I ended up having to leave that position. And just before I left, I realized that my daughter, who was in preschool right around the corner from where we lived, had a placard mural of a chieftain head uh, in the building of the preschool. And I said, what is that? And it was a note for me to think about later. And I ended up doing some research and I started looking. I said, what is the mascot? What is Pawpaw's mascot? And there it goes, you know, that they're the Redskins. Uh, so I was like, so that hit me. It was almost confirmation that, yeah, you received this treatment. And then now here's the mascot. These two things are going together. This is not a safe place for black and brown people. So because I was on my way out, of the town. I left, I moved, and then I said, you know what, uh, you know, I was not, I wasn't finished. I wasn't finished letting them know that what they did to me, to my family, to undoubtedly multiple other Native people, because it's never just one person. It was undoubtedly happening to so many other people and had happened. I said, you know what, I'm really not, I'm not happy with how I left that. I'm not done with them. I want them to know that it wasn't okay. And so um, this was about, I want to say 2016. I want to say 2016. Um, if it was earlier than that, it would have been uh, summer of, of 2015. It's one of those two. Let me see if I can find. Yeah, I'm going to go back to 2016. I believe summer of 2016 is when I was able to gather a couple people to go with me to approach the board. We began just going to board meetings during the summer. We got told that this was a back burner issue. They're looking for a superintendent. This wasn't, you know, something that they were going to focus on, but they knew of it. They were aware of it. Um, they've been approached in the past. And so it was kind of just like push it to the side kind of stuff. They listened to you because they had to. Then they started doing things like, you know, you could only get X amount of time to speak. Then they started doing this thing where, oh, well, only one person from your organization can speak. And I said, we're all here on individual causes. What are you saying? And they're like, well, only one person from your I said, you're saying one person per topic? You know, I was really trying to make them pinpoint what they were saying, which a lot of what came up was they didn't want multiple people of our ethnic group to speak. Um, they didn't want to keep hearing this five, six, seven times, which was a tactic that we used to make sure that this was heard and took up time and space. So for folks out there that are like, what do I do? Start taking up time, start taking up space and make sure you know the, uh, what's the name of it? The um, it's, it's the uh, set of rules for school boards that they have. Oh, yeah, of order. So make sure you know your Open Meetings Act. Make sure you know you know what your rights are. Um, and that was stuff that I found out as I went along. That was stuff I found out as, as the elders that had gone through that before were able to speak up. Uh, fast forward, we had our first demonstration. We decided to disrupt the Wine and Harvest Festival, which is a really big event for them. Brings in a lot of revenue. It's, it's a celebration for them to really highlight the fact that they make wine there and, and other things. I was able to, because I lived in Kalamazoo, I looked around for groups in Kalamazoo that would align with, with what was going on and that were willing to help out. I had to do a lot of educating, which just speaks to the fact that when you're building solidarity, when people don't know what's wrong or they don't know um, what your group is going through, there's, there's a lot of educating that has to be done, but if people care about you, they will listen to you um, and they will get on board. And so start talking, start, you know, people are going to question and send them whatever is easiest for you. It's an article, it's a, it's a phone conversation, it's a YouTube link, whatever it is. Um, just started educating. We did the Wine and Harvest Festival. We took signs. We did a small march. At that time, we did work with police. Knowing what I know now, that's not a tactic I use. But at that time, you know, we were trying to inch our way into feeling our way through the city. We ended up doing, disrupting the Wine and Harvest Festival again, another year. And then we ended up, I think we took, I want to say, we took a year off somewhere. Uh, trying to re trying to regain tactic, but while we were building up this momentum and while we were disrupting things, um, and while we were testing our boundaries and testing our waters with what their police department was like, so on and so forth, 
it got to the point where finally they're like, okay, we will have a discussion about this mascot. And they set up their, you know, three meetings and, and, and you could come to these meetings and give your opinion. And then they're going to make a decision on this date. So we got to that part. And then the way that they did that, of course, being people that don't have, they're not used to anti-racism work. They don't know how to do that. So they put people together and they let everybody give their opinion, not realizing that their dominant position is inherently racist, supremacist, and inherently exclusive. And so we're just sitting here listening to a ton of comments of people that don't know anything about natives and are being inherently racist at the same time. They're also reinforcing each other in, in the conversation, so, right? Because they all, they all have the same opinion. Yeah. The kind of mob mentality that, for example, Maria mentioned walking into a room and seeing a sea of red. My kids will mention that that gave them anxiety. They can remember that walking in and seeing a sea of red and knowing anybody in red isn't there for you was big for them as small children. When Maria told me that story, it gave me anxiety. And I wasn't even there because I've been in rooms like that where you're so outnumbered. They made up their own definition of redskins with the help of MAGA. And I think the time that we took off, Monica, we had like a pause. Um, we had been working together on educating, right? And I had been doing activism and research as a sociologist and presenting on the harm of Native mascots. And true to our kind of collaborative culture, and y'all know because y'all are Indigenous and we have collaborated for decades, right? I gave Monica and Julie my research and they went and they took it and they made it beautiful and they went and presented it at critical issues Todd but it doesn't matter you know in terms of how much we educate when people are so resistant Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and I really I really want to try to figure out how we can go from here because we collaborated you know we had Chicanos in the Native American Association at Eastern, Natives in the Chicano Student Union, you know, and we've collaborated beautifully for a long time. I'm well, we, glad things are starting to change. Yeah, and that's what we do in this podcast. We, we solve those problems uh, every week. <laughs> oh, see, I thought that was funny. Nobody else laughed. <laughs> oh, you guys really... You guys really do um, believe we solve those problems every week. Okay, my fault. <laughs> no, but I think that that's that's part of what we're trying to do here is is try to address the questions that you're that you were just asking. And and Monica, that is a that's a riveting story. I mean, seriously, like if you have that down in a notebook, you really should be writing that out. And um, listen, y'all, y'all, my notebook's almost empty and i have another one on top of this one yeah monica um, has written for us the michigan coalition against racism and sports uh and media newsletter she's written well she and julie i mean you know we collaborate yeah she's written some fantastic articles julie's written some and she, girl can write <laughs> english for reminding me i forgot about that she can uh, fight and she can write listen if I can, can, is it okay with everyone if I just take five to wrap up the story? I'm going to speed through the end because I was like three quarters of the way done with the story. And then I want y'all to do all the questions you want to do to everybody okay. else. After we did the mascot discussion meetings, it was terrible. It was traumatic. More and more people started coming because they started seeing how we were being treated. Uh, we ended up responding, counter-responding. They put up a giant billboard on I-94 that said, we are the pawpaw, our words. And we were so like, are you kidding me? So we decided to raise funds to counter respond and we ended up purchasing a billboard, put it in the same spot. And then we wrote, <laughs> we wrote the, the definition of the R word, which is in the dictionary, which basically says that it's highly offensive, should be avoided, um, and is an antiquated term for Native American people. So we responded that way. The last protest that we did, the last demonstration, this is so important. This was at the height of when I say black and brown solidarity contributed to this, being someone that's in both communities, I was always drawing inspiration, always learning, always bringing my communities together to say, please help with this, it matters, we need the numbers. I, together with another Latina key sister, relative, good friend, um, we ended up blocking their parade. They're having a parade. Her and I were the only two people 
that walked out into this parade, stopped the truck with the float on it that had their high school, you know, excited kids on there to rep their school. And we knelt until we were escorted by police off of the road. Uh, we knelt in Colin Kaepernick fashion to throw a nod to that. And that was the last, you know, thing that we kind of did. Um, and we had other folks that walked in imitation of the Million Man March. So they marched and they kind of had signs that said, you know, hey, here's who I am as a Native person. That's not an R word. It's not a stereotype. I'm a doctor, a musician, a teacher, a parent, etc. And both of those actions were powerful. And after that, um, you know, we kind of had, had disrupted so much that even though they chose at that time to keep the mascot, everything that, that had happened caused a disruption in their community. Um, their kids began to be affected in the school. There was arguing going on. Eventually, they got another superintendent, and he was like, okay, we're going to get rid of this because it's affecting our children. And I, all I could think of is that's what we tried to tell you at the beginning. If you don't change it now and if you fight, this is going to trickle down, and y'all are going to be divided because everyone's not going to agree with how you're treating other humans. And we had to put our bodies on the line to demonstrate that. That's it. And it changed. So they did an amazing job. Julie Dye, who's not here, who's part of the Pokagon Band, they actually came in and participated in this presentation. Y'all have a different issue with your Espanol folks up there trying to say <laughs> there was no genocide. Why should you take statues down or teach ethnic studies? I'm wondering how, where do you go from here, y'all? Because at least we got, and the three fires actually have a fund now um, for schools that remove the mascots. So what are y'all going to do? What can you do? Like you kind of stuck, you don't have a tribe with a casino behind y'all. Real quick, I just want to say those two minutes were totally worth it. I love the ending of that story. That is War of the Flea right there. I mean, it's you create a situation where you are a constant irritant to power and to the power structure, and you force them to acquiesce through that irritation. And, you know, like when it gets down to the kids and the kids are arguing with each other and there's fighting in the school and all this other kind of stuff, I mean, mission accomplished. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, that's, that, that was good. But, I mean, to the rest of you all, because I know that you all – got ideas about this. I mean, jump in. What are, what are you thinking? Well, I was thinking we should have uh, our try to get Dr. Lara on here because I know following her Instagram and stuff um, and her being at New Mexico State that they have issues with like a water tower. And, and I think I've seen her put forth ideas on what to do with, you know, with uh, what's his name, you know, the genocidal maniac that uh Onyate? yeah who uh basically raised Acoma and when I mean raised I mean R-A-Z-E-D Acoma Pueblo and you know other Pueblos but you know there was no genocide so you know they they I think they put forward some ideas on you know what to do when you get rid of you know statues to colonizers like that who are also genocidal against you know native peoples I kind of think that the good thing that this fool gave us an opening, um, this, this guy up in New Mexico, to finally really start challenging the Hispanic quotations, Hispanic narrative, you know what I mean? Because I think to the average, just let's say just the average American or average person out in the United States, they don't really get to the, the understand the, the complexity of what the, the Chicano or the indigenous identity is, right? So they they're just kind of like, well, yeah, it's Hispanic. It is, you know, that might upset the quote Hispanics without really understanding the genocidal history of the Spaniards in relation to other indigenous people and Chicanos themselves. Right. So it's a good, it's a good, you know, we've had this whole Hispanic thing kind of forced on us and, you know, thrown down our throats, forced down our throats. Uh, it, it's not accurate. It, it erases our indigeneity and it erases our, our African history uh, while promoting the kind of whitewashing us. And I think it's, it's, it's a way, even though you just kind of want to roll your eyes, like we still have to deal with this. And unfortunately, unfortunately within the Mexicano community and as a whole, you know, New Mexicans have always had this bad reputation for doing that. There's been a big thing in Nuevo Mexico 
with them holding on desperately to, the, to their this Hispano identity. So even though it's very annoying, I think it kind of gives us an opportunity to say, yeah, man, take those, take those, um, take those statues down because they're not really a represent me. Don't represent my community. You know, uh, it, it, to me, it's always like the same thing. Like no one would dare insult an African-American by saying that somehow they're related to the slave owners that raped their family. So why in the hell do we get this Hispanic identity, this Espanol identity rammed down our throats when it's the same thing what those guys did was commit sexual violence and terror and, 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 uh, genocide against our relatives. Like, I just never understood that. Well, I, I think, uh, and, uh, Todd was there and we were in, uh, was it Tucson? No, it was Albuquerque, uh, for a Knox conference. And, uh, even some fool out of the Chicano studies, uh, program was putting forth this idea, you know, of the Republic of the North, meaning, you know, Charles Trujillo, Trujillo. Yeah. But the thing about it was, is in this republic, it wasn't really a republic because guess who was in charge of all the, you know, unwashed brown masses. And it happened to be, you know, coincidentally, you know, those enlightened Hispanos from northern New Mexico. You know, and then I traveled there not too long ago. And I was listening to a radio station. It was either the radio station or the news. And even the way they were, they were uh, portraying the... Uh, the people who were there, the established people, which of course mean the Espanos and quote the dirty, you know, Mexicans who had come into the area. It was, it was markedly different, you know, so, you know, not a lot has changed over the last five, 600 years in, in Albuquerque, it's got a little bit of an ear, but you know, it's still a mess. And I think this it, guy is emblematic of it. And I think it's also interesting too. One of the things that Monica was saying was that, uh, this high school in Papa uh, was created or they adopted this um, this mascot in the late 1800s. Is that right, Monica? I heard you say that. See, what's really interesting about that is, you know, if you think about the timeline, I mean, the late 1800s is really when the Indian Wars are wrapping up in the um, in the West, right? And so even here in this town that I live in, there was uh, this um, secret organization. They call themselves the Smoke Eye. It was all these white people that used to like paint themselves red and then they would do like all these fake ass ceremonies and everything. But the thing about this is that this was serious business here in Prescott. I don't even think those fools thought they were making fun of somebody. That's how serious it was. Like they were like about it, right? And for years here in Prescott, this organization flourished. The point being that here in Arizona, this organization starts in the early 1900s, in the early part of the 20th century, barely 30 years after the official cessation of hostilities between the United States government and native nations here, right? Uh, Yeah. When did the uh, Michigami Society at U of M start? Uh, Good question. About the same time, and it included President Gerald Ford and a lot of other people. And that was yeah. a huge, huge battle as well. And people lost their jobs. Yeah. Right? Anna yeah. Martin has a great job now as a director of Zibbowing. Yeah. She, used to be, she had an important, fantastic position at U of M. Yeah. So persecution, those of us inside the academy, makes it, it, makes it kind of dicey. Yeah. So, you know, I think that it has something to do well, I don't think it has something to do. It has something to do with, with the timeline. It has something to do with the way that that this history is immediately co-opted, right? And that is a condition, like the sister was saying, and have, we've talked about before in this podcast many times, that's a condition of settler colonialism, right? I mean, if it's if they're really settlers, then they have to be the original people on this land, or they have to make up a history that places them as legitimate, with a legitimate claim to being the original inhabitants of this of this country. I mean, the United but, States has become a, a, a motherland. It's like a fake motherland. It's like in Italy or you know Ireland or Great Britain, right? Well, to, to tie that in too is isn't that the same time that a lot of these uh, daughters of the Confederacy uh, statues and all that other garbage came up too? you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. Daughters of the American Revolution. Right. No, 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 no. The, the ones that put up the Confederate statues. 
Oh, oh, so that's that how, yeah, or Stone Mountain, or, or uh, you know, Trump's favorite place to go speak. So I think to get back to Karen's question, I think one of the things that, that we can do in, in the Chicano community, because I think that a lot of people in the Chicano Mexicano community, especially here in the United States, are also on a journey of indigenous reclamation, right? Like we're mm -hmm. understanding who we are in terms of like hemispheric processes, not just like, you know, our families immigrated here, quote unquote, from, you know, Mexico, but that we are the descendants of indigenous people who have resided in this hemisphere for, you know, century, for millennium, right? And so it's, it's a part of that in indigenous reclamation. I think that one of the things that's really important with this is that we somehow make the point every time we have this discussion that those stupid ass statues that these guys are arguing about, that that man in New Mexico shot that woman over, I mean, he shot her over that statue because they wanted to, to bring it down, right? That they are our version of these mascots. I know it, do, I know it doesn't seem like they directly relate to each other, but the process, the mental process that makes it, mm -hmm. makes those things real, that brings both of those things into existence, it is the same thing. It's a process of a straight, of settler colonialism. But I would also say that it's not just the Mexican Chicano community that is reclaiming their indigeneity. It is all of Central On top of that, we have to acknowledge our African heritage, right? Without it, we cannot move forward. That we have to talk about that. We also have to talk about our African ancestry. It is way too interwoven with our indigenous community to neglect. With the Founders Fountain in Kalamazoo, and I think that needs to be a really big, important piece of where we go from here, um, is what are we gonna replace it with? Where are we gonna move it to? How are we going to frame what those statues mean to us? We need to be on those committees. We need to be in those Zoom meetings. And Monica will tell you, that was one hell of a battle that she was engaged in and other people, Disha has been involved in the one against De La Salle. And then we have, you know, down in Monroe, but we need to be engaged in that. We need to be on those committees. We need to be demanding that whatever museums or libraries or spaces that they move those to, that we get to create the narrative. Well, it's related to what this, as we call it, the fool from New Mexico wanted to eliminate the, you know, ethnic studies. It's somebody needs to respond back, you know, publicly on the press and write, you know, to contradict and say, why is this fool such a fool, right? And then when we think, and but somebody, you know, either locally or from another program to um, explain the importance, to explain the battles to keep those ethnic studies in place. And following up with what Alex was just saying, people are still surprised that there's black people in Mexico or in Honduras mm -hmm. or, you know, in Central America. Like, what? You don't think that slavery arrived in all of Central America and North America? It wasn't just in the U.S., right? And when I think back home in Puerto Rico, People are, again, claiming our indigenous roots, Tainos, and, you know, some of the baseball and basketball teams have the name Tainos de Mayagüez, right? And there's no fight over that because it is totally appropriate because the people from Puerto Rico have descendants from Tainos, right? But then, you know, is this perspective that don't you dare touch the Christopher Columbus statues around the island. Don't touch them because we're so proud of our Spanish American, Spanish inheritance. And it's like, are you kidding me? Are we really not understanding what this guy did, what this guy represents? And somehow people don't want, don't touch the Christopher Columbus statues. It's the way they stand. They, they like their, the, the, that part of their, of their, you know, who they are, of their background. And it's fine. But then 
if you understand that you are descendants of Spaniards, then you also need to understand what Spaniards did when they came, you know, to the Americas and invaded and colonized and killed and brought diseases. So just like you're proud of that, you also need to recognize that part. And I think that that's the 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 part where many of us Latinx people don't, you know, feel that, yeah, they want to claim that whiteness, that European background, because it means power, because it, it brings power with it. So, preach it. Preach it. Yeah. yeah. We can use our in power and privilege, too, to get on those committees, right? Yeah. Because people have never heard of De La Casas. Um, one of the reasons I think that um, this name change happened also was a big involvement with the ACLU. They ran reports and found that there had been a discrimination against all protected classes. Mm -hmm. And so they, they threatened to take away their financial power, right? Their, their financial, uh, federal financial source. source. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be something if we organized that one year for the census, we could all claim our native background? and then change shit for a lot of people. Right now, Mayeli is in English as a second language because the school district gets paid per ESL student. And she doesn't need ESL. I mean, uh, she speaks English, she writes English, she, you know, she reads English. Shame on me for not <laughs> spending some more time and, and helping her learn the Spanish, but mm. also I wanna teach her Nahual, but you know what yeah. I'm saying? When, when we, when we want to challenge these statues, these icons that are negative against us, the what Karen was saying, education sometimes is not the, is not the key. Sometimes removing monies from them, and if in the U.S. Census we all agree to set to to select other and say Chicano and say Taino and say whatever it is that you are, then that's going to start changing the demographics of the U.S. Census. That's going to start changing, um, not at the not immediately, but it'll start changing the monies and fundings that come to that community because if you don't have, uh, uh, you know, native education, you don't have. Um, special programs for native people to advance then i think that that's another way to show protests another way to challenge the status quo again that takes some organizing so i don't know this is my two cents on that i want to back up what you said maria uh one piece of counsel that was given to me as i was collecting ideas and advice for action was that you have to approach settler colonial Lism, you have to approach those folks on their own set of values. So, uh, for example, with Papa, their own set of values was their children. They, yeah, they'll do anything to anybody else and any other group, but if you touch their children, you know, that's it. You know, I had an incident with one of their children and they were threatening all kinds of lawyers on me. And I was like, your dude walked into a public space outside and approached me and I and I handled them and <laughs> y'all got mad. Okay, but this wouldn't happen if you didn't have this mascot. See what I'm saying? And same thing with money. You know, that was one reason I think they were so upset is because when the ACLU suggested withholding federal funds, that that was that angered them because now we're taking something that's of value to them. We're threatening that value system. So they're like, well, until this happens, you know, we're, we're not doing anything. And it was shortly after that that the what you said that enough uh, the the, the FOIA that was done revealed all of the different layers of ethno and religious uh, harassment and intimidation that Pawpaw High School was a, was a source of that was held inside of that place. And then they did, uh, they actually have filed and it's still not resolved um, with the um, Department of Education on the federal level. They also filed an actual complaint uh, on the federal level against Pawpaw. And I think that also is part of why they were like, you know what, we are just getting hit on all sides. It's not worth it, y'all. I think that's that's what happened too. I just wanna mention that under Obama, um, this complaint we filed with the Department of Education, my daughter was part of that suit too, from Ipsy High. Obama's, Obama's Department of Education didn't do shit with it, you guys. Wow, so, Obama. <laughs> think it's going to be some democratic savior, you know, a, a, as big of an improvement as he is over Trump. Anybody is over Trump. I don't we, know. We'll see. We'll see if Joe Biden's an improvement over Trump. I got my doubts. So no, no. I'm just saying for the record, I just want to be 
clear on the record. Is that a prediction that he's going to win? Uh, oh yeah. Hope so. Oh okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that. how that works out? Trump's going to steal it. They've got their bots out well, here. Stealing it and winning it are two different things. I, I just yeah. want to be really. I want to be really clear about that. Stealing it and winning it are two different things. I agree with everything that everybody's saying. You know, I think that's why I was just really listening to to okay. the stories. Uh, yeah. and, and I agree. I think the main thing. And this is an issue we. Cover. This is one of those mixed blessings, you know, where somebody bringing up an issue or, you know, trying to control the narrative is really an opportunity for us to uh, to step up and bring the issue to light, which is what they need. And at the same time, uh, you know, it's about getting involved in the community. And this, I think, some that Alex has picked up, right? Being on that PTA, right? Isn't that way you'll see Sue said, and this starts all that, you know, locally and the coalitions build and the bridges extend. And that's where unity comes in. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I mean, the more you listen to it, the more you can you can see the the layers of the campaign that you guys were running there from, mm-hmm. you know, making requests under the Freedom of Information Act to direct action. Monica, I just want to tell you as a person who has long been maligned as a militant, uh, congratulations, really, because um, that is a uh, that that is a badge that you should wear with honor, I think. The next best one is Rabble Rouser, which is uh, my <laughs> personal favorite. I'm getting get it printed on my next business card. Um, hey, Monica, Karen, Maria, thank you guys for the role you played um, on Papa. I mean, I kind of echo what Todd was saying earlier. We've been, th- we've all been there and it's not easy yeah, in that one in, in that room, but, uh, but I'm very proud to have met and talked to you guys and heard your story today. Hey, thank you. thank you. The biggest thing that I that I picked up from that, because it's going to be more, there's going to be something else. Uh, something's always going to be there until everything's on. But uh, one thing I picked up is that, uh, you know, first of all, as long as I wasn't alone and, you know, people showed up, I had to, I had to, you know, pull, but people showed up. And, and if you got that happening, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then the second thing is one thing I need y'all men folk to do is I need y'all to make space for women, two-spirit, queer folk, because we are the ones that are sitting on the most marginalized parts of our hierarchies inside of our identity, inside of our ethnic group. And if y'all make space for us, a lot of times we know what needs to be done, but we need y'all to make space and to flank and protect in that way. And that's something that I've been bringing up a lot more. It's so important. So please take that, that with you if you're not already implementing that. They are, these sisters will keep them in check. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know what space I'm in yet, so I just had to say it. Oh no, you're you're in that this space. This is a good platform yeah. for that. This this platform is, yeah. Since I've been involved, I think I I have felt that I've been given space um, with my Chicano brothers that I started organizing with back in the 1990s. So, um, Monica, you're more you're welcome. Um, I think that your opinions are going to be valued and in not just valued, but implemented, you know, so if you continue to, to join these platforms and, and join these, these talks, these platicas, um, I think that you'll find a very welcome, welcoming space. So, but I, I just wanted to say. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really strong Chicana from all the organizing that I did and from all the educations that I have. But when you're a parent with a child that's going through stuff, you do need that support. Yeah, absolutely. You need that support. You Sometimes you find yourself like you need advocates when you've been an advocate for others and you mm-hmm. don't didn't even realize that you needed that. So this is a healing moment for me. So Mm. Todd, thank you. Karen, thank you. Um, All of you guys, Francisco Mm. and Alex and and Juan Carlos. I mean, God, you guys are fucking awesome. You guys, um, Mm. you guys hold space for us even when we're not there. So um, I love you, Maria. (laughs) You know, I do. You know how much I love Uh, you. I don't know how many you times know. I got to show you. You know and how much I love you. For those of you that I, I, I'm just mad and I've just been in contact for, I mean, I could see your spirit come through um, of support and, and generosity and, and uh, inviting other groups um, and, and just 
talking to people about embracing not just our native but our African uh, lineage, mm -hmm. right? And so, Alex, I appreciate you because you always always bring that to the table and always remind us of that. So, um, yeah, I mean, thank you. Hey, that's all we have for today. My name is Ernesto Todd Morales, and on behalf of the Dysfunctionals, I want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to comment on our podcast site. Just search for the Reality Dysfunction on Podbean or like us on our Reality Dysfunction Facebook page. But best of all, share the episode. It is literally the gift that keeps on giving. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, 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 rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.